With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success, and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Marcos, a professor from Cornell's Business School, and welcome to this live SubChina CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, a show focused on leaders and companies facing the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. Today's webinar is in partnership with the U.S.-China Business Council, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization representing over 200 American companies doing business with China. And our topic is China and Rare Earths, a view from the U.S. states. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm really looking forward to our discussion of what is not only an important area in U.S.-China relations, but I also think will shine light on some unique entrepreneurial stories that underlie trade between our two countries. Our first panelist I'd like to introduce is Craig Allen. Craig is president of the USCBC and has had a long and distinguished career in U.S. public service, particularly related to commercial relations, and Craig has served in many positions in Beijing, Taipei, and Tokyo. He is the former ambassador to Brunei and has served as deputy assistant secretary for China in the U.S. Commerce Department. Uh, Mitchell Spencer is also on our panel today. Uh, Mitchell is president and managing member of Polaris Rare Earth Materials, which is a global provider of rare earths and permanent magnets. And the company works with Chinese sources to supply these rare earth materials. 
uh, and also Colin Rank, uh, who is executive director of the America China Society of Indiana, which is a membership-based nonprofit that promotes bilateral business exchanges between Indiana and China. Craig, Mitch, and Colin, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So uh, I think first would would love to start with with Mitch and and learn a little bit about uh, your company, Polaris uh, Rare Earth Materials, uh, and how you got started in business in China and the work that you do. Thank you. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to be here today. This is the first time I've ever done or participated in a podcast, so it's uh, it's a new experience. And uh, thank you for inviting me to speak. So uh, I'm located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Indiana is my home home state, and um, so this is a great thrill for me uh, to tell my story about how I got involved in rare earths. I have to go back even before I was a professional. When I was in junior high school in the early 1970s and um, uh, mid-1970s, you may remember, some of you may remember, there was an oil embargo uh, between the Middle Eastern countries and the West over a dispute over how um, things were handled between uh, uh, not pegging the U.S. dollar to the gold standard. And so there was a dispute. Uh, the Arab nations uh, reduced their production dramatically, and it caused uh, a lot of issues in, in the USA. I can remember cars being backed up at the fuel pumps. And uh, I, I still remember my parents complaining about gasoline at $1.45 per gallon. That doesn't seem very expensive today, but it was in 1974. So this caught the, uh, the big three, we call them Chrysler, Ford, and General Motors, uh, in a bad position because they had gas guzzlers at the time and uh, very little uh, fuel economy. And um, one of the lessons learned out of that was that they needed to, uh, to be more efficient in their cars, to make lighter, more efficient cars, because the Japanese companies came in and ate their lunch. So General Motors uh, started a number of research projects designed to take weight out of cars. One of those projects was to make motors and generators smaller and lighter, but with the same output. This research was done at the physics department at General Motors, up at the research labs in Warren, Michigan. Lo and behold, they invented neodymium iron boron materials, which is now still, many years later, the strongest magnetic material in the world, and it is still fairly affordable. So they met their goal. Now, here I come. I'm a mechanical engineer um, and a process engineer who worked at General Motors in Indiana, where they launched a factory to produce this material. So that is how I got my experience in with neodymium iron boron materials. So I started working for that uh, startup in 1987, even though the, the invention occurred in the early 80s. It took that long to get it commercialized. So. I was a process engineer out of the plant getting equipment to run, and uh, my specialty is the rapid solidification of rare earth alloys. So um, uh, I worked with that uh, business unit for several years, 
And my last assignment was to build a sister factory in Tianjin, China. And so I, I packed my bags and uh, went to China. And three years later in Tianjin, and three years later, we had a factory that was running. And so um, it, was, it was really a marvelous experience, but it had a downside too, in that what was to be a sister plant ended up being the only plant. And so I had a choice to either stay at that factory in China in an engineering manager position or to come back home. I came back home because my family uh, did not go to China during that time. So it was, uh, it was a tough for me to, to uh, be faced with that situation. But um, uh, I could either stay and wait to be dismissed or, or maybe find another job or stay in China. There weren't too many options. So I decided I'm not going to wait for someone to ask me to leave. I'm going to make a new path. So during my time in China, I had made acquaintances and uh, there were some suppliers of rare earths that needed someone to help them sell them in the U.S. And so we launched a small business to be a distributor of raw materials in the USA. And that's how we got our start. It was Polaris Rare Earth Materials. Um, there are five owners. I'm one of the five and also the managing member. And um, three of the owners are now disinterested partners, but one of the four uh, owns a magnet factory now, and uh, we are best friends. And um, uh, he's an older gentleman, but he's now one of my suppliers. So this is how we got started. And, um, but our primary business was still supplying raw materials like lanthanum, cerium, um, samarium, uh, but nothing much about magnets. Um, magnet business takes a long, it has a long gestation period and you cannot just say, well, I want to sell magnets and tomorrow start selling magnets. But some of these raw materials are more easy to sell. So that, that gave us a start. Then we decided, you know, we really want to get into, um, you know, things that we're good at, like neodymium iron boron and, uh, magnet materials. And we were selling some magnets and we had an opportunity to do some assembly work that contained magnets for a fuel pump company, an automotive fuel pump company. They didn't have much for me to do, but they gave me uh, an engineer to work with at their factory who was having some trouble with his motor design. And, uh, you know, it kept me busy here at home. And uh, um, it was a small project, but they, you know, we developed a relationship. Finally, um, one, one of my competitors, who was also their supplier, got in trouble with a quality problem. And uh, I got a, it was for a high volume job, uh, like a show, uh, a real game breaker for me. And uh, I got a call from them and they said, Mitch, do you remember that, uh, that high volume program you really would like to have had that we wouldn't give you? And I said, yes. And they said, uh, do you remember the pricing that you had given us? I said, yes, I remember it. They said, are your prices still good? And I'm starting to think, what's going on here? So um, you know, I said, let me check. I'll get back with you tomorrow. And so I called them up and said, gave them the pricing. And, and they said, how soon can you start? And I said, tell me what's going on here, guys. So this was our introduction into doing assemblies for motors. And so it was really... Um, 
uh, scary uh, because it was a, 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 um, uh, we were under a time crunch, but we started doing these assemblies here in the States. Uh, and so this was our first chance to do significant assembly work. Unfortunately, it worked well, but the way we were trying to do the assembly was by importing parts, various parts from China, and putting them together in the USA, and then selling those uh, to the to the customer. Uh, we were using a uh, we call it like a Hopewell Center with uh, people with disabilities, which worked wonderfully. They're wonderful, wonderful uh, people. They did a wonderful job, but the we had a lot of problems with the quality of the suppliers in China. We, I realized that this bottle wasn't going to work without supplier supplier quality presence in China. So I decided that we would uh, try to find a way to get closer to the suppliers in China to put uh, to do these assemblies. So um, uh, then I, I invited one of my um, uh, managers at one of the suppliers that I dealt with to join me. We started a joint venture in Ningbo, China. And so we, we never looked back. So now at this time, uh, 15 years later, um, after starting this assembly joint venture, we now um, have 85 employees at our own building and, and doing significant and very interesting work with uh, automotive uh, sub-assemblies for cars, trucks, pollution control devices, um, basically the kind of actuators and sensors that make cars more efficient. Great. Well, thank you. That's a really interesting story that, uh, you know, to, to learn how the business evolved from, you know, seemingly an importer into, you know, making things yourself into then this, uh, this, this joint venture that you have in China, which I'm really interested in learning a bit more, a uh, bit more about. Uh, but before we dive into a little more details on that, I actually want to turn to Craig and ask him a question. You know, Craig, you've had long experience as a commercial officer in a variety of different locations in China, Taiwan, Japan. You know, I'm curious, you know, when you were in those roles, uh, how did you work with businesses like uh, Mitchell's? So what an interesting question, because Mitchell's business has uh, changed, uh, evolved uh, many generations over, as, as we just heard. What a wonderful story. Uh, I would note that if um, I was at the U.S. Embassy anywhere and an American businessman came in and said that they wished to offshore uh, production from the United States to a country, I would say, I can't help. Nothing I could do. Uh, we're, U.S. embassies are not in the business of uh, helping companies to offshore. Um, but um, this case just demonstrates how the world is a much more complicated place. Uh, the original factory that opened up in Tianjin uh, was probably mostly for the China market as well as uh, perhaps Asia, perhaps global. And then it, and then it morphed uh, into uh, uh, an export platform with the closing down of the U.S. operation. Um, and so uh, it, I think it's a, it's a beautiful story of uh, an entrepreneur uh, finding a pathway 
and then exploring how to grow the business uh, from an unlikely start, uh, from uh, perhaps getting laid off uh, from uh, a plant in, in Tianjin to building what appears to me to be at least two uh, very strong, viable businesses, one in Ningbo uh, and one in Indianapolis. Uh, so the flexibility and creativity of the story to me is uh, a wonderful um, uh, tale. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, uh, Craig, Craig, for those, those, those details. Uh, and I'd love to actually turn to Colin now uh, for a little bit of, of color from the state. So, you know, one of the things about Mitchell's business, as Craig just mentioned, you know, one of the headquarters is in Indianapolis, Indiana-based uh, business. You know, Colin, you, the organization you work for, you know, I'd really like to hear some about, you know, how your work and your organization help support companies like Mitchell's, other small, medium, and sized enterprises in uh, Indiana, and also attracts Chinese investment itself uh, into your state. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks again for allowing me to be a part of this. Um, so a little bit of background on the America China Society of Indiana. Uh, for all intents and purposes, we operate as a chamber of commerce between Indiana and China. And so whether that's, you know, attracting foreign direct investment or mergers and acquisition or, you know, equity stakes um, from various partners in China or helping Indiana companies, um, you know, export, trade, um, streamline operations, kind of the full gamut on that. Um, one of the things that is um, kind of prevalent in Indiana is while we have a pretty diverse um, array of industries, um, we ha also have a lot of uh, discrepancy between the volume of some of our companies. So, you know, a Cummins or an Eli Lilly, you know, these huge um, Fortune 500 companies. And then we also have probably um, some of the, the smaller, <laughs> that the more S of the SMEs um, kind of scattered throughout the state. And so one of the things that we um, do as an organization is really to help some of those smaller companies um, learn more about how to um, fix you know, some of their Chinese operations. And as you can imagine, given the trade war and some of the, the changing dynamics, a lot of folks are having to sit up straight and kind of reevaluate a lot of those things. So. You know, the, the model that we've chosen um, has been one of kind of the great facilitator, the great connector. Um, so working with, you know, uh, Mitch's company, you know, some of the things that we helped with were exclusions or, you know, reclassification of their goods and making sure that they're talking to the right lawyers and really trying to be able to provide that objective guidance and push them in the right direction. And the nice thing about that is, you know, not being a service provider, um, we can provide a lot of objective guidance to make sure that Indiana companies are doing the right things and um, are getting the right resources. Um, and, you know, kind of looking at the second question you had said about the attraction of foreign direct investment in China, um, you know, the story of Indiana's relationship with China um, actually goes back quite a long bit. Um, Indiana has a sister state relationship with Zhejiang province, uh, which was formalized in 1987. Um, and even some of our companies, like Eli Lilly, um, it stretches back to 1917, 1918. So we have long-standing relationships there. Uh, our organization was founded in 2010, um, really trying to model uh, the Japanese wave of investment that hit um, the Midwest in the 1980s, thinking, okay, well, you know, if there's this, you know, uh, pipeline of Chinese companies looking at coming here, we tap into that and make sure that, you know, they're they're getting set up right, um, helping the state and various other economic development partners. Um, and obviously things have changed a little bit over the past few years. And so uh, really how we've been repositioning ourselves to try and be that objective um, 
party to make sure that people are getting the right information. And, you know, I, the sad reality to a lot of this is, you know, people are looking at the media and, you know, hearing uh, different viewpoints that aren't true. Um, one of the, you know, stories that I got is, you know, an Indiana company calling me up saying, well, now I'm confused here. So we decided to import um, some new machinery from China because the president said that China pays the tariffs. And now Customs and Border Patrol are saying that I owe $10,000 worth of tariffs. What's going on? Uh, so, you know, it's it's a sad reality that we have to be reactive to a lot of this. But, you know, I think part of our, our goal is to really make sure that, you know, Indiana companies do have the right information and so that we can be more proactive to make sure that people aren't making those mistakes. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, one quick follow up on that. So you mentioned you have a sort of sister relationship with Zhejiang province, the state of Indiana, and probably Indianapolis has has a relationship too. I mean, you hear a lot about these, you know, different partnerships. I know my hometown Pittsburgh in the news recently because Wuhan is the sister uh, city. So there was some news around the COVID outbreak. How, how does that impact your, you know, commercial relations or, or other relations? Um, do is there special delegations between Zhejiang and Indianapolis uh, or other connections? Yeah, um, you know, again, a lot of those connections, you know, it, it's not like it was, you know, they've only been a couple of years in the making. I mean, we're talking, you know, nearly 35 years now. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, I can't pretend and say that everything is nice and rosy, you know, because it has been uh, problematic in a lot of arenas. But you know, I think the one thing that us as Hoosiers, you know, people from Indiana take pride in is that that hospitality and, um, you know, trying to have those deep seated relationships. And, you know, so it was, you know, wonderful to have, um, you know, our governor, Eric Holcomb, go to China in the end of 2019, you know, sitting Republican governor going over there to try and uh, attract more jobs, um, Hoosier jobs uh, via foreign direct investment. Uh, through China. So, you know, I think the way that we've been set up um, has really been to, to keep that level foundation and playing field so that as new administrations come in or, you know, things are changing, you know, we still are maintaining those relationships and we have active communication. Um, you know, I think one of the the, the nicer, um, you know, if I'm looking at a little bit more optimistically because of the pandemic, is it's really kind of forced us and a lot of other folks to look at virtual conferencing. I mean, here, even today, we're all in different parts of the U.S. And so we've been able to adapt a lot of our programming for that. And it's actually paid a lot more dividends. Uh, last year, as we do every year, we did a, a China business conference to help Hoosiers do better business with China, find the right partners. And I can tell you, it's a lot easier to convince you know Chinese investors and Chinese companies to open up their laptop than it is to get them on a flight to Indianapolis. Yeah, no, definitely. As, as, as a professor, actually, I've been having all kinds of great guests into my class as well, which I never would have been able to do. So there is definitely some positive to our online virtual conferencing nowadays. Uh, so I'd love to turn and ask you another sort of follow up, Mitch, on what you said a little bit ago. But before doing that, I want to encourage our listeners to put questions in the Q&A function. Uh, there's also a chat function if you could put most of the put your all of your questions in the Q&A function. So I only have to look at that one location and we can actually, you know, you know, a ask those questions of, you know, Mitch, Colin and Craig. Uh, so, so Mitch, you described a really wonderful story of, you know, a variety of sort of pivots and changes. Uh, and I'd love to, to ask a little bit more about, you know, what general lessons perhaps that you've learned that you can impart to some of, uh, you know, some, some entrepreneurs, you know, you have a, a joint venture factory. I'm sure that was complex to set up and your partner 
you know, interested. You know, I'd love to hear about finding finding your partner and and that process uh, and any other just sort of general you know takeaways or lessons learned that you have from your process. Oh, thank you. I would love to say a few words, uh, but please stop me because I could ramble for for hours. Um, uh, first of all, I will say that sometimes in life you just don't know which direction life was going to lead you. And that's certainly the case with me and my family. I mean, I, th- I thought I was going to retire as an engineer from General Motors. And, uh, and it didn't happen. But in fact, uh, now I'm, I'm working very closely with, uh, with Chinese, the Chinese people, the, the suppliers, with customers in the U.S., Germany, South Korea, India, Mexico. And so um, I guess the first thing is just you just don't know where life might lead you and, and don't worry about it because, you know, opportunities will come about. Um, if you're not happy with what you're doing now, you'll you'll find something that, that you will be happy. So um, I let me talk about business partner. So how do you how in the world can a, a U.S. guy who doesn't speak Chinese, who knows very little about the Chinese culture, how can a guy or a person find a good partner to do business with in China or even to partner with in a, in a company, which is what we did. So um, my, part, my current partner in our Ningbo plant, where we produce uh, lots of different magnet assemblies for automotive use, uh, we work together as supplier customer for several years, uh, four or five years before we decided to partner together. So I think it's very important not to just jump right in and form some sort of business with someone you have no idea who you're going to be working with. So um, though there's no perfect way to know what someone is going to be like uh, as a business partner, um, I did know that my future partner was very serious about working hard. He was very serious about quality, quality systems, which were two very important things to me. And, uh, and he was a good engineer. So we, you know, there's always risk. You cannot eliminate the risk. Um, but I, I guess maybe the best advice I would have would be get to know someone first before you partner with them. And that's, that's sort of a life thing too, right? It's not just in business, but also in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. That makes a lot of sense. What's your sense? I mean, you've done so much business in both U.S. and China. Is there one that's sort of easier, harder? I mean, I'm sure they're, they're obviously very, very different, but I just would love your sort of first blush reaction. Well, um, China is, is very, uh, relationships are everything in China. Um, I think the, the Chinese word is guangxi. And uh, so uh, relationship is very important. A handshake and a relationship is more important than the paper that your contract is written on. And um, the contracts are, are usually very flexible. And uh, so it would drive a U.S. attorney crazy uh, to see some of the contracts that I sign where we're buying things from suppliers. But um in, in 20 years of doing work with Chinese suppliers, I think maybe only one time have I ever been mistreated. And, uh, and, and that was not because they were Chinese. Uh, that was because they were just not good business, not reputable business people. So, um, you know, but again, take small steps before you sign big deals with anybody in China. Get to know them and uh, do some test work, do some prototyping, and just see how it goes before you 
jump in head over heels. Uh, my, my, uh, you know, um, U.S. Is, is good to do business. My business in U.S. is more as a supplier. So I'm on the supply side with a customer. In China, I'm on the customer side. So it's a different view. But generally speaking, uh, at, at, a, at a, a, a human level, uh, the Chinese uh, suppliers are really nice to work with. Uh, they're very gracious. Um, I will say one thing. Um, the weak side of most Chinese suppliers that we deal with are their quality systems. So they're at the very, not the very beginning, but they're still maturing as understanding the importance of quality management in their factories. And we don't necessarily uh, mind if they don't have a lot of experience. Uh, what we care about is, are they willing to learn? And so we will work with them and work them up and spend a lot of time in their facilities uh, to help train them. And so that's what we look for, is someone that's open-minded and willing to let us come in and help teach them. Great. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Craig, I'd, I'd love to ask you for a little bit of reflections on, on what Mitchell just said. I mean, so the USCBC, you know, works mostly, I think, with large Fortune 500 companies, not small, medium-sized enterprises. I'm sure, you know, that much of what Mitchell said probably resonates with what your members uh, see. I'd love to hear what you think as far as, you know, what may be applicable to them and maybe what some other features of uh, Fortune 500 companies' relationship with China really stand out. Terrific. Thank you. Um, first, let me uh, comment on Colin's uh, remarks about Indiana. I think he was a, a, a modest uh, there. Uh, in fact, um, we're compiling right now 2020 trade statistics, and Indiana is our fifth largest exporter to China. And uh, Indiana exports in 2020 were up to China, were up 400 percent. Um, and it is uh, to a, a little bit less uh, than four billion uh, U.S. dollars representing, uh, you know, more than 10,000 um, uh, jobs uh, in uh, the state of Indiana. And Indiana has the, the tech uh, as uh, represented by Mitchell and Eli Lilly and Cummins and, and others, also has great ag. Uh, and uh, probably the export numbers are, are really heavily weighted towards soybeans uh, and, and, and corn. But it was a good year. Uh, and I think that uh, Governor Holcomb deserves a lot of credit. Uh, why did Indiana do well? Well, it's a long-term uh, uh, attention uh, to the market uh, is paying off. Let me say that there are a good number of things uh, that um, uh, Mitchell's story ring, rings very universal uh, for uh, both uh, small uh, and uh, large companies. Um, I, I could not agree more that uh, the human relationship, the friend-to-friend -friend relationship, is probably a lot more important than, than the contract. Uh, and I think that uh, having, particularly if it's a 50-50 joint venture uh, with a friend, uh, then you're probably in, in a pretty good uh, uh, place. I also really like uh, the, uh, if you will, the over the, uh, what, what is it, uh, 25 years, uh, Mitchell, uh, the uh, flexibility and the dynamism and, and, and the, um, 
the 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 form shifting uh, nature uh, of your relationship and the fact that uh, you have uh, made that work uh, every uh, step of the way. So not going in with a set, um, uh, we are only doing this and, and, and that's it. Um, I think that uh, Mitchell's um, uh, approach uh, to the tariffs uh, and the fact that uh, he is still working uh, with uh, the same suppliers in spite of the tariffs uh, coming on was very disruptive, uh, is also uh, terrific. And the fact that these supply chains reach to Europe and Mexico and Canada and the U.S. is also uh, allows uh, Mitchell a lot of flexibility that other small, medium-sized and perhaps larger companies are really going to envy. Um, that uh, you might be able to export to a macchiadora in Canada and then bring in, uh, or, or in Mexico, and then bring into the United States. So that flexibility and adaptability, I think, is really uh, uh, fantastic. And uh, finally, uh, keeping up on that technology and uh, really uh, being in a, a, a rapidly growing field where uh, a, a beautiful niche product, uh, uh, should we all be so lucky as to have uh, a wonderful niche product for which there's a rapid and growing demand. But uh, Mitchell has found that, and uh, I think that that's uh, uh, fantastic. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Craig. And I, you know, I really appreciate you too uh, tooting Indiana's horn a little bit. I actually was not aware of of the success of of Indiana in the, in the China market to such an extent. So I really appreciate you, you know, sharing those details. And we have we have a question that's come in from one of our listeners, David Tyfield, which I want to actually ask for ask Colin, which relates to this. Uh, so what David had said is following Colin's intro. Uh, could you reflect on the extent to which the breakdown of U.S.-China relations at the national level uh, e affects the state level, basically? And I'm curious, you know, even though there's this tremendous growth in the last number of years in Indiana, and it sounds like your governor is doing a great job uh, establishing relationships uh, in China, do you see any uh, effect of the the trade tensions? And what the extent the the questioner asks, can the can the latter so? You know, your state level work withstand the pressure to decouple uh, at the national level? Yeah, uh, very good question. Um, you know, I think it's it's wonderful just to kind of piggyback on uh, what Craig had just mentioned. Um, Hoosiers are also very modest, so we don't like to toot our own horn sometimes when it comes to our successes. Um, so the other side to this, too, is, you know, I think one of the reasons that we've been so successful um, as a state has been we, we take a very pragmatic approach to a lot of things, you know, and, you know, a lot of that is, you know, if we look at the federalist system, you know, some of these federal questions, you know, that's not necessarily something that the Indiana Economic Development Corporation can answer. So it's a better use of resources to focus on what we can control rather than get, you know, flustered and, and worried about what we can't control. And so, you know, part of the, you know, what's been crazy about the, even just the pandemic is, um, you know, one of the things that we were um, tasked with was to try and bring uh, PPEs in from China. And so I was writing up, you know, emergency youth authorizations and things like that. So rather than focusing on what we can't do during the pandemic or what we can't do because of the trade war, what can we do? Well, we can bring in, you know, I think it was 250,000 masks uh, during the very peak of it from China. 
Um, so it's, again, trying to take that pragmatic approach. Um, and, and just similar to, you know, Governor Holcomb during his trip, um, you know, obviously he was asked, you know, lots of times about those federal issues, but, you know, the the best thing that he can say is really just, you know, that, that's something that, you know, we don't really have control over. Um, and so, you know, I think because of the way that we're set up and, you know, with our organization, ACSI, kind of being that level of foundation, we don't really have those, um, those valleys that maybe some other states do. Um, and I think part of it, too, is just our diversified industries, um, you know, like many other Rust Belt states, um, you know, that had just focused on manufacturing for the longest time. You know, we've really adapted a lot of our technologies so that, you know, now we're looking at, you know, high level advanced automotive manufacturing or cybersecurity or, you know, Indiana's the orthopedic capital of the world. So because we have such diverse industries, we don't have all of our eggs in, in one basket, per se. Um, so that really helps us as well. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you for for sharing. Really interesting. Um, So we've talked a bit about sort of, you know, in general, doing business in China, which, you know, is the real focus of this China Corner Office uh, podcast and, you know, effects of different states, you know, great to learn about Mitchell's uh, business. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and dig into this, you know, topic of rare earths, which is so important for future products, which is so important for the relations between our two uh, countries. You know, Mitchell, I'd love to just start with you. And could you just give a general overview? You've talked a little bit about some of the different rare earths, but, you know, why is China so dominant in this? And why is it such a hot issue between the U.S. and China? Well, it's very, it's a very interesting question and um, a very important question. So, you know, most of us, including myself, we did, had never heard of the rare earths. And uh, if you, it, you know, most of us took chemistry in high school and, and as a mechanical engineer, we were forced to take chemistry uh, the first year of college, right? Well, down at the bottom of the periodic table, sort of at the far, at, at one row up from the top, are these series of elements called the lanthanides. Well, what are lanthanides? You know, that's for the chemists to worry about. Well, these these lanthanides um, had very limited use for many, many years. Uh, and, um, for instance, maybe, maybe they were used in glass polishing or maybe they were used in oil refining. Uh, but nothing, you know, exotic, uh, like, a, like a high-energy magnet. Um, but, uh, um, you know, as, as the economies evolve and the needs for environmental um, uh, cleanliness in our businesses and in our environment and uh, so forth, uh, you know, the scientists have discovered uses for these rare earths that, that will help us move forward with clean energy and, uh, and also more efficient uh, devices. And so, and even in medical, you know, there are some very interesting uses for some of these rare earths. So, um, so the demand for the rare earths were not very high until, say, the 1990s. Um, and that's when there was this big push for efficient cars. So uh, now there is, there was, and now is, um, there's a very important rare earth resource right here in the United States. It's located just west of Las Vegas in Mountain Pass, California. And it was owned by uh, Unical. And then it was, um, uh, uh, it was called Molycore. And um, so we have a very rich resource of rare earths right here in the United States, but it is not very active. It was active, but now, now it's not. 
but uh, uh, China uh, has an advantage. They have a competitive advantage for sure. Uh, they have very rich deposits all across China. They have in the north. They have an iron mine, an iron ore mine that has been active since the 1930s, and for years there was this uh, trant material that they had to sort out, that that didn't go into steel, and they just piled it up into a tailing pond, and uh, those were the rare earths. And then, uh, so in, in the 90s, uh, when it became more interesting to use these rarers for magnets or for, you know, whatever they are used need to be used for, they, was, they had it right there. In, in southern China, they have uh, special deposits that have some of the heavier uh, lanthanides that are key ingredients that allow neodymium iron boron magnets to operate in automobiles at high temperatures. So they have some competitive advantages. But with the electrification of the vehicle, with clean energy coming on, it's a very exciting time. Even China does not have enough resources to supply the world with rare earths. So this is going to be a very exciting time for the miners around the world, in Canada, in Northern Europe, in South America, Australia already. Um, and uh, we'll see that grow now, and it's going to be exciting. Great, yeah. So let me ask you a, a couple of follow-ups to that, because this is a really important topic. And I just recently listened to, actually, there's a Seneca podcast. You know, Seneca is the sort of flagship podcast of, of, of SubChina. Uh, with Kaiser Guo is talking to someone named Julie Klinger, who's a professor of uh, geography at the University of Delaware, has a, has a really amazing book on the topic and goes over many of the important uh, details. And one of the things that stood out to me from that is that, you know, this idea of rare earths is a misnomer in some ways that actually these are very ubiquitous materials but it's actually just very difficult to mine or to, to, to process them and there's potentially a lot of environmental uh, implications and so you know it's sort of interesting that many of the applications are for clean energy and environmentally friendly uh, products however the actual production and mining of them is environmentally damaging so i'd love to hear you know more about you know in some ways, the environmental impact uh, and how that affects where they're produced. Well, that's very, it's a very important um, comment. When, when China first started manufacturing and separating, mining and separating their rare earths, um, they, they did not have, you know, they had a chicken and egg problem. They wanted to develop their economy, but uh, they also had these challenges of environmental issues from the manufacturing. And so, unfortunately, China followed a similar path that all Western countries have followed, where they try to build their economy first, and then they say, we'll go back and clean it up later. And they made the same mistake that we made, that, that the European countries made many, many years ago. And just, just in the last 10 years, I would say they've started to take a serious look at, at the environment and the damage that can be caused for manufacturing, and rare earths are one of them. It's a very chemically intensive um, uh, process, and uh, there are waste streams that need to be dealt with. Uh, there, are there are safety issues for the employees, and I, I, I can say that they're now very serious about this. Uh, and... And anyone around the world needs to be serious about it, too, because, you know, environment 
to say you're going <clears> to <throat> deal with, with economics first and grow your economy and then go back and clean it up later, that's a bad idea. And I think we all know that now, but it's hindsight, right? So, yes, if when we start the mines in Canada, uh, when we uh, increase the production of mountain pass, which I think, as Craig knows, is, 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 is going to happen, has already started. So the environment, it, it can be done cleanly. Um, it can be done um, safely, but it, it requires extra attention and extra investment. Great. Thank you, uh, Mitch. Uh, I have a, qu- a question from our audience, which I'm going to address to Craig, because it, it sort of concerns national security policy with regard to rare earths. Uh, so what the commenter David says is, with the U.S. government planning to invest large amounts of money into new domestic and non-Chinese production sites, you know, what's your assessment of the U.S. being able to, A, become a meaningful producer for rare earth products, and then B, become a supplier of manufactured products from rare earths? So when uh, the Biden administration uh, came into power very, very quickly, within about two weeks, there was an executive order uh, on supply chain um, vulnerabilities. And uh, I think that it is specifically looking at the subject of rare earths. And my understanding is that the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce are, are looking at supply chains of rare earths to determine that um, uh, in the case of yet more tension with China, and if there was a uh, cutoff, uh, what would we uh, what would we do? How would we uh, manage that? Do some uh, contingency uh, planning. I think also, um, while it is not yet complete, um, within the draft uh, Strategic Competition Act uh, that is um, in the shall we say, the mid to final phases uh, uh, of the, um, within the Congress, and maybe, maybe becoming law in May or June. Um, I, I think that there is potentially some um, uh, money, certainly for research, uh, and for uh, potentially for manufacturing, uh, or the, some of the pol- pollution control mechanisms, measures uh, required uh, for rare earths, recognizing uh, the over-reliance uh, on China, if not for the rare earths themselves, then for the processing of the, the rare earths, which is really where the bottleneck uh, is. Uh, I understand that there's a lot of rare earths leaving from all over the world going into China in bulk form to be processed and coming out again. And can't uh, that, um, uh, what is oftentimes known as beneficiation, uh, can that not be done uh, in the United States uh, uh, so that we uh, have more uh, leverage and more control over our supply chain? And I'd, I'd love to hear from Mitch if uh, whether or not He's designing in uh, recycling uh, of rare earths. And is that a part of the, the supply chain here? And if it's not, should it be? Uh, because indeed, uh, this is environmentally damaging wherever. And is recycling a part of the answer? Yeah, great. Mitch would love to hear the answer to that. Yeah, I would, I would make a comment. Um, I think you you brought up a very important topic, um, the recycling. Uh, The rare earths are not necessarily rare. 
but they are sometimes, they are a commodity and commodity prices are up and down. And um, so there is value in the recycling of, of rare earths. Now, uh, the question is, how can we get that done? Uh, I know that there's activities going on with the Department of Energy, uh, with uh, universities and research labs to, to find ways to, to recycle, you know, the neodymium or some of the, especially some of the heavy rare earths that are uh, much more expensive. But uh, just because I, it isn't rare, neodymium is not rare. It's more abundant than copper. And, uh, um, uh, but some of the additives are actually rare. Dysprosium, terbium, they are actually truly rare earths. And so we have to use them frugally. And, and the pro there are problems because uh, I heard a university professor say, you know, if we could just get the disk drive people to use a standard magnet in their, in their uh, disk drive, uh, you know, maybe we could tear tear that disk drive out and take the magnet and and another. It could be bought and sold. The issue is uh, there needs to be some standardization in designs at the com at the computer companies. And right now, everyone has their own special design, and so it's you no know, no engineer wants to use somebody else's uh, magnet. Um, so right now, the the recycling that's going on today, primarily in China, is the magnet waste uh, is, is put back into the very beginning of the rare earth purification process. So they take it all the way back to the beginning, dissolve it in these acids and start to, um, start to, um, uh, you know, it, it, to come out with a rare earth again at the end. That's a little wasteful um, and a little bit too far back uh, the other thing is that, you know, we have to we, we have to try to find a way to make rare recycling work. Maybe there could be some kind of incentives uh, to take that magnet out of the starting motor before it goes into the landfill, you know, and that, that needs to be developed. It, it, it's important. Um, I think maybe not today, but um, five, 10 years from now with, with all this clean energy devices that are going to be coming on board and, and in electric vehicles and everything else, uh, it's a very important step. And I hope that we don't uh, make a mistake to landfill these things and, and not take advantage of, uh, of what, uh, what we have there. Yeah, thank you, Mitch. That's a really interesting sort of second order implication of this yeah. focus on on clean energy and also yeah, yeah, recognizing the the ecological potential damage from these rare earth magnets. Uh, I want to stay on rare earths for one more question. We have another question from the uh, from the audience. And then there's a number of questions about sort of tariffs and trade war, which I'd like to turn to after this next question. Uh, so we have a question from Mihaela. And I'd like to direct this to Mitchell. It's on rare earths. Uh, how will China's declining supply capacity in the industry impact global supply chain structure generally? And you know the possible locations for new rare earth deposits, and what might be the geopolitical impact of those locations? Well, that's a very astute question. I I do want to say that I am not um, a rare earth geologist. Um, you know, I, I do attend um, uh, uh, seminars once a year. Um, I did before COVID to see what's going on with the miners. Um, they're called mining conferences. So 
there are significant deposits of, of these key rare earths worldwide. Um, now, uh, not all rare earth deposits are created equal. Some of them are, are uh, easier to process than others. And some of them only have rare earths. Some of them have rare earths plus something else. It's not a rare earth that can be sold. So this, the miners will certainly figure this out. They know how to do their jobs. Um, I think a number of these deposits with the right amount of demand will be, um, will be uh, economical, uh, feasible. And so there needs to be more there need to be more active mines than just China. China has an abundant capacity of rare earths. I don't think anyone really knows what their real capacity is in the ground. They don't really publish this kind of data. They have, uh, the, the real question is how much is China willing to export? You know, they have their own economy to take care of. They have their own electric vehicle projects. They have their own windmill projects. So. I think it's important for the Western countries, U.S., EU, and, and everywhere, to start to plan, and not, not for political reasons, just look at, just look at supply and demand um, that we need to start working. Now, uh, an interesting thing I heard uh, from, from these mining conferences and it's, is, is that from the time you find a deposit, you, you, you drill holes in the ground, from that time, and you, you decide that this is an interesting deposit, from that time until you actually have a mine that's running and operational is about 10 years. That's the fastest that you can get it done. That's if you have the money, if you have the financial backing, it's 10 years. So it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, we've been talking for the last 15 years about what do we do, how are we going to get rare uh, productive outside outside of China. It, it it's it's time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a large time lag. That's really I I didn't realize that that's really Yeah, uh, the, interesting. it's very, very, very strict uh, hurdles that, that the miners have to follow um with the investors. Uh you know, there's all kinds of studies, preliminary studies and feasibility studies and they, they have to go through hurdles before they can get the next batch of money, you know. Um um, great. Well, we're, we're about 10 minutes left. And I know a real important topic uh, is the trade war tariffs that I, that I want to address with all of you. And maybe I'll start uh, back with you, Colin. You've mentioned, you know, a member asking about, you know, being surprised, actually, that they were getting charged for their their tariffs. I'd, I'd love to hear more generally about Indiana's experience uh, in the trade war and how the tariffs have affected, you know, uh, Indiana companies uh, doing business in China. Yeah, um, you know, I would say it's it's pretty varied. You know, obviously the large companies, you know, like a Cummins, like a Lilly, like an Allison Transmission that have operations in China um, that are already serving the Chinese market. You know, they're not really as affected as much. It's it's much more of those you know smaller companies that. Um, you know, one company in particular that we had worked with, we're getting basically double tariffed. You know, I think they um, imported 90% of their raw materials from China, processed in Indiana, and then Chinese customers represented 60% of their, their total sales. Um, so it's those companies that are really um, struggling because of that. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, we had sort of joked about Hoosier hospitality and, you know, being modest. The other side to this too is there's a, a touch of naivety um, 
that's that's present and i think you know for the longest time people were looking at china as kind of this golden chalice that there's so much money there and you know you can make it big and so people were you know rushing and not necessarily doing their due diligence of you know trying to get started there and um, you know, one of the companies that we had worked with um, <laughs> signed a, a contract um, under the pretense of uh, investing 14 million RMB uh, for a uh, production site in China, but accidentally put 14 million USD. Um, so now that they they had to make um, some changes there. So, you know, one of the, the benefits of the trade war is it's really forced people to reevaluate. Um, a lot of other things and to do the due diligence beforehand rather than this mad rush of the, the, the market's huge, there's lots of money, there's you know lots of business for us. Um, and so I think ultimately that's going to help so much more in the long run. Um, and you know I think from a state perspective, um, you know we we again are, are staying very pragmatic with everything and you know I think because of the um, you know, just basically putting our heads down and, and trying to do what's right and um, focus our, you know, attention and resources to things that we can control. It's still paying off. And, you know, just last week I was speaking with a Chinese company that's in the process of opening um, their first uh, distribution center in the Midwest, um, kind of in the outskirts of Indianapolis. So there's still a demand there. Um, I think that, you know, it's just, it, it's a little bit more tricky just because of CFIUS regulations on, um, you know, foreign direct investment and, you know, some of the, the folks that are primarily using China as kind of a one-way street, whether it's, you know, just for a supplier, or just for a market. Yeah, th- thank you. Uh, you know, I'd like to ask you too, uh, Mitch, you know, the specific, the tariffs, you know, what impact did they have on your business? What adjustments did you have to make? And then also one of our questioners, Claudine Lee, asks about the uh, Biden Buy America Act and whether that in the future will have any um, effect on your business, do you think? Well, uh, yes. I w- Let me say, first of all, that the, the penalty tariffs that were enacted a year and a half ago, um, some of our products um, uh, were not impacted, um, but other of our products were uh, with a 25% penalty tariff, which is, uh, you know, that is just, uh, it's a showstopper. Uh, it's really, um, you go from, uh, you know, we don't make that kind of margin to uh, no kind of gross margin or contribution will cover 25%. So, um Luckily, our customer uh, was willing to share half of it with us, um, which makes it at least sort of a break even. Um, uh, but we we think the twenty five percent penalty tariff is something that is not it's not a viable way to proceed long term between two countries the size of China and the U.S. So we hope that the two countries will. Now that they're talking again is good news. So um, that's the start to talk and sit down and negotiate uh, the various issues that they have between them. And it's our hope that that this can be negotiated out once the two parties can start working together again. Um, You know, we don't have a lot of options. uh, other, I mean, we've already fully invested in, in, in our plan in China. People said, well, why don't you just do it here in the States? You know, that's not such an easy thing for a small business to just pull up and move. Uh, we're not a multinational company. So we're just hoping that uh, 
reasonable minds um, on both sides will will start talking to each other about all the issues that they have on the table. And I'm sure they're already talking now and that maybe within a year or whatever it takes that maybe we'll get some relief. It's interesting. One thing that stands out to me is sort of in some way similar to you mentioned this 10 year time lag in some ways on, on the mining. I mean, in the contracts that you have and the, you know, your place in the supply chain, there's also tremendous time lags as well, because these are built into some components, which are part of some larger thing. And for that to be redesigned or the contracts you worked, I mean, that's a tr- many multi-year process, no doubt. It is, it is. And it, uh, you know, we really, um, in the automotive business with the OEMs, um, once they design in a certain supplier, even it's very, very difficult to change suppliers. Very difficult. The 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 OEMs, the the Fords, the GMs, the even the Cummins, they're very, very risk averse as far as quality is concerned. They don't like to make changes at all. So yeah, you're sort of stuck in a in a real tough situation there for a while. And uh, so we we just hope that uh, I'm personally hopeful. I'm an optimist. So I'm hopeful that uh, that even though the differences uh, seem so great right now, that uh, the two countries will work together to try to improve uh, the situation over time. Great, thank you. So for the last question, we only have a few minutes left. I'd like to turn to to Craig. You know, you added some nice, I think, detail regarding how Indiana is, you know, sort of punching above its weight, so to speak, as far as trade with China. You know, we've talked a lot before in prior podcasts about negative economic effects of the, of the tariffs. And I'm wondering if, do you have any sort of detail or insight into, you know, different states that might be affected more or less uh, by the tariffs and trade war? And then as well, sort of any final comments uh, you might have in our final minute. Well, uh, thank you. Um, it's interesting uh, that uh, with the phase one deal, uh, we saw all of the agricultural producers. So the Uh, Midwest uh, had a very good uh, 2020. Um, And it looks like uh, that uh, those good times will continue into uh, 2021. Um, uh, It was really on the agricultural side that we saw the Chinese meet their quantitative commitments to increasing U.S. imports. Um, On manufacturing, only they met only 60% of their Um, commitments and on energy only 30%. And I'm sure while the figures aren't out on services, I'm sure it's less than that due to um, uh, travel restrictions. Um, So the impact uh, has been broad and wide. Uh, I think as a general matter, um, uh, what Colin's point that many uh, small, medium-sized manufacturers who were relying on a single source of supply that perhaps they've known it for known them for 25 years, but uh, they were overly reliant. Um, uh, many of those people are suffering grievously, um, and I think that um, uh, to a certain extent, much of the cost of the tariffs have already been uh, borne. Um, uh, but uh, the drag on productivity, the drag on uh, pricing, the, dr- the advantage given to uh, non-American competitors who are competing in our market using 
components and materials from China that are not tariffed uh, remains. Uh, so uh, we will not rest uh, until uh, the tariffs are removed. And the bilateral relationship between China and the United States cannot be normal until those tariffs are removed. Great. Well, we're just about out of time, so just want to thank uh, all of you, you know, Mitchell, for sharing your fantastic story of entrepreneurship connecting our countries. Colin, also an entrepreneur connecting the state of Indiana with China. And also, Craig, as always, thanks for your sort of wise insights on the security and national policy implications. Thank you all for uh, attending this China Corner Office podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.